Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism. My name is Aaron Flam, and our guest today is Michael Susan. He is the author of Backstabbing for Beginners, My Crash Course in International Diplomacy. Michael Susan is a writer, but was a program coordinator for the United Nations Iraq program. That job became a stepping stone to becoming a whistleblower in what PBS NewsHour called the largest financial scandal in UN history. But first, I want to thank you who supports Deconstructive Criticism. Thank you for supporting me on Patreon via PayPal, Bitcoin or Swish 0768-943737. 0768-943737. All ways to contribute can be found in the description of this episode, regardless of what platform you're listening on. You will also find a link to my webpage, aaronflam.com, where you can buy t-shirts, mugs, and hoodies with this podcast's motto, among other things, your feelings are hurting my thoughts, as well as my own book, This is a Swedish Tiger. Second edition is now sold out. The third edition will be going to print next week, and when it comes out, it will contain three new chapters. Thanks to you who bought a copy of the first and or second edition. Slash S. Your support enables me to, for instance, fly to Los Angeles to conduct the series of interviews you can now listen to on Deconstructive Criticism's feed. Among them, the interview you're about to listen to now with Michael Susan. I wish I had read his book, Backstabbing for Beginners, before I wrote my own, because they are eerily similar in many respects. Our discussion will concentrate on Michael's book, Backstabbing for Beginners, has also been made into a film, but I've only read the book and can warmly recommend it, especially if you want to learn more about international relations. As the title of the book clearly states, it's a crash course. The book describes Michael Susan's experiences within UN's Oil for Food program and the corruption within that organization. 
Michael Susan started at the UN in his early 20s, and maybe there's something about Michael, because the reason he applied for a job at the UN in the first place was because he was tired of working for the private sector, and thereby contributing to the destruction of the world. In short, he was driven by idealism. It is also a book about cultures of silence and that which enables them. Conformism, consensus-seeking and conflict avoidance. Conflict avoidance is really just a nicer way of saying cowardice because it always seems to come off as passive aggression. I know because I've talked about these characteristics in relation to Swedish culture in my entire career as a stand-up comedian living in Sweden. The flip side of Swedish culture is that it is also very idealistic. Take it from someone living in the country calling itself a moral superpower. This was one of the two main reasons for me wanting to talk to Michael. These traits are truly dominant in Swedish culture. For me, they are closely connected to egalitarian collectivism of that particularly Swedish brand of social democracy. But having grown up in Sweden, I have known few others. These traits are probably universal and culture and or ideology might reinforce or weaken them. The other reason for my interest is that consensus in Sweden dictates a doctrine of uncritical adulation for the United Nations. Sweden's got UN fever. To question the UN in Sweden is taboo. If Swedes today had only known that when the UN was founded, then-Social Democratic Prime Minister Per Albin Hansson, one of modern Sweden's founding fathers, was dead set against joining He wanted instead to see an international organization for social democratic parties. That idea became what is known today as the Socialist International, but Sweden is ruled by PC, whereas we call it here consensus culture. Any history that doesn't fit the current narrative is conveniently swept under the rug and quickly forgotten. As against the UN, as Per Albin Hansson was Then, as completely for the UN, Swedes are today. Our elected leaders shower the UN and its operation with funds collected from Swedish taxpayers' money. Most of the time, more in the hope of securing a future job at the UN for themselves than to improve the world, it seems. I won't mention any names, but Margot Wallström is definitely one of the names I'm not mentioning. When all other donors withdrew funds from UNVRA just the other year, because of corruption within that UN institution, she instead increased funding. Now she's retired from being the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Sweden and instead has a cushy job at the UN. Today Michael Susan is a writer living in Los Angeles where this interview was recorded. The conversation as well as the book was useful reminders to myself to avoid tribalism and collectivism of any sort. In the end it is up to, or comes down, to you. And I hope this conversation serves as a reminder to all that idealism can often render worse results than a little cynicism. With that little nugget, it is my pleasure to present Michael Susan. Enjoy. So, welcome to Deconstructive Criticism, uh, Mr. Michael Susan. Thank you. I usually start out with a very broad question. Uh, so that you get to define yourself before I delve into uh, uh, the piece of work you presented me with. So who are you, in your own words? A Sephardic Viking uh, whose big aspiration when he was eight years old was to become a clown. And my father uh, was not very happy about that, and he said I should be an international lawyer. And then I tried to become one, but... uh, 
I've landed in a firm that was extremely uh, corrupt. It was run by a person called Jack Abramoff, who ended up on the cover of Time magazine as the man who bought Washington. So after nine months of, of seeing that uh, at work, um, I um, got a job at the UN, which I thought would be a chance to do some good. And sort of wash your soul clean. Yeah, maybe. Um, and uh, But also, you know, it was interesting. You get to see the world and some parts that you would otherwise not go to. And um, this huge humanitarian program was starting, which would use more money than the UN had ever seen. Which program was this? Uh, this was the Oil for Food program, which was um, necessary during the two, in the time between the two wars. Uh, the Iraqi people were slammed with sanctions and they had a destroyed economy and Saddam was still in power. And the sanctions would continue as long as Saddam was in power. So essentially, um, they invented this system whereby we would let Iraq sell oil because the oil market was happy to have the supply and then take the money into a UN account and use it exclusively for humanitarian purposes. So our job at the UN was to oversee the use of this money. And um, this was because uh, George Bush, the elder, mm -hmm. he went into Iraq. Yeah. And this was Operation Desert Storm, right? Yeah. And then the US and Britain wanted to impose sa sanctions on Iraq. Yeah. yeah so, so, and, but it, they didn't really affect Saddam. He could continue to live in luxury, sort of? Up to a point, but... Fundamentally, oil need, needs to flow for Iraq to, to be uh, manageable uh, at all because they have no other resources. But uh, it was really hard on the population. Yeah, extremely hard. I mean, we, we saw people on their deathbed, uh, you know, in hospitals. Um, we really saw the conditions there. I traveled with the Undersecretary General in charge of the whole operation. So we're looking at a seven, $73 million, a billion dollar operation. And you were very young when you got this job. I was very young, but um, there's a thing at the UN, uh, which is that people don't trust the person right underneath them. So the Undersecretary General did not trust his Swedish uh, director. And so he took the assistant of his director with him to Iraq, uh, both as a slight to his, uh, to his director and because he, he knew that there was a higher chance of a young, uh, you know, green apple uh, not creating any uh, problems uh, for him. Um, and also you had just come from Jack Abramov's firm. And I could write. Yes. Uh, and in, at the UN, there's very few people who can actually do that. Uh, so uh, that was, you know, when you're meeting with the vice president, uh, who at this the time was running this program, uh, the foreign minister, uh, and all these guys. Um, Iraqi foreign minister. Iraqi foreign minister, um, and so on. Uh, he needed someone to take his notes and, and write the, the memos back, essentially. I just want to jump back, because you said Sephardic Viking, but you didn't provide any explanation. Would you care to elaborate? Uh, yes. Well, I, I kept, while I was living in New York, I kept being asked that, cocktail parties so what are you where are you from and there's an accent i detect and where is it from and it, i never knew quite what to say because i'm half danish from my mother's side um straight vikings uh no you know nothing else to say there 
and from my father's side, um, they were um, a family that was born in... Um, my father was born in Morocco uh, at a time when the family was trying to, to flee uh, during World War II. All of their ships, uh, they were merchant shippers, had been seized uh, by the Vichy regime. And uh, they were planning to take a boat to America. Because Morocco was French at this point in time. It was French, uh, but you could still bribe your way uh, around. Like the police, as in the movie, yeah. uh, was, was very uh, bribable. Uh, and so we were not... And the movie you're referring to is Casablanca. Uh, no? yeah, 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 like or... in the movie. <laughs> uh, so essentially, um, he grew up in, 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 uh, in Casablanca itself. And uh, he then uh, left for, for, for Israel, as so many um, uh, Jews in the Middle East uh, had to do at the time. And uh, there he met my mom, who was uh, on a tour in a kibbutz uh, in the 60s, you know, yeah. uh, hippies. And, uh, the worst after, kind of people. After <laughs> most dangerous kind of people on earth. The, uh, after the war, he, he decided to get out of there and move to Denmark. And uh, there I came. All right. And um, which war was this? Because the Vichy regime, they were the French Nazi collaborators, yes, right? Yes, And, and they uh, took all the money from the Jews of Morocco, and that's why your father had to flee. But the war you're referring to yeah. now is the 67 war in Israel. Uh, is, uh, they were in a state of permanent warfare between 56 and, and 57, which is uh, a trench warfare in, in, in essence with uh, both Jordan, Syria and Egypt. So 67 was just the war that kind of like uh, stopped this situation of perpetual uh, retribution um, cycle. So he went back for 67 unknown to us we thought he was on vacation but i was too little at the time i mean i wasn't even born in 67 there was the 73 war i remember as well and i was born in 73 all right um but your father went back for the 67 war i'm not my father has a a complicated history all right uh, which which i don't know all the parts of so you're a Sephardic Viking, and then he wanted you to be a lawyer instead of a clown. Good on him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because uh, I wanted to be uh, in finance, and now I'm a clown. There you so, go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and, um, <clears throat> so how, how did you end up in the United States? Well, I think the dream of the family was always to go to the U.S. They were saving up to go to the U.S. when my father was little. Um, but then the, the Americans landed on the beaches in Casablanca uh, very early in the war, in fact, uh, 42 or 43. And uh, the first house to be bombed uh, on the hill of Casablanca was my grandfather's house. And there was nobody there, but still, it was. they were very welcome, of course, uh, by the French and, and by the Jewish community among the French. Um, but they never ended up being able to go to, to America because um, my grandmother died in childbirth. So essentially, my, my grandfather was left with five children uh, alone and didn't want to remarry. Uh, so it limited him a lot in what the mobility uh, we had. And, um, and also, I think our family was based in... in um, they were in the Navy, and we think we lost... Uh, the person they were in contact with uh, at Pearl Harbor. So essentially, we didn't have a, a family to go to anymore. Uh, so one by one, they left for Israel. My father was the first 
at age 14 to, to go. But it has to be said for Morocco that uh, of all the countries um, that were, you know, that fell victim to, to this type of Arab nationalism uh, that was in fact a, a kind of extremism at the time, uh, Morocco was the least um, brutal towards the Jews. They mainly wanted independence from France. And uh, the king himself surrounds himself with uh, Jewish advisors and has been for years. Uh, so there are some privileged Jews that were able to stay. Yes, but the some very privileged. Very privileged. Yes. The uh, middle class and uh, anybody under, they, they kind of had to go. Yes. But also, I mean, this was during the Second World War. And, yeah, and, and, and after, I mean, in the 50s, that's when the independence movement started. And in a sense, there is this belief in the West that uh, the Arab world hates the West because of Israel. Uh, what they don't understand is that uh, from their perspective, Israel is a Western uh, bastion in their, uh, you know, uh, in what they consider their turf. Uh, and they don't hate uh, the West because of Israel. They hate Israel because they see them as Western. Their ideology well, is yeah. based on anti-Westernism, basically. Yes. The, the West corrupted us. That is the essence of about just about every, um, I think, extremist movement, from the religious ones to the non-religious ones. Um, there is this narrative, I think, that we find in a lot of... Uh, Hitler used the same narrative, uh, which is there used to be this golden age in which uh, we were smart and rich and everything was great. And these others uh, took it away from us. Uh, and if we just eliminate these others, uh, then we shall again, again be great, great. And of course, it's very easy to galvanize people's hatred uh, against a minority group, uh, be they Jews uh, in Europe or Yazidis in uh, Syria and Iraq. It's a very powerful uh, mobilization tool. And much easier than actually building a modern civilization. Yeah, much easier. And, and also, they benefit from the fact that uh, we did uh, have a role, uh, as, as the Western uh, world did have a role in corrupting uh, these, these regimes, these military regimes um, that were... Um, well, they came into being after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and they were bankrolled in essence by uh, by Western powers that would get get kickbacks from what they sent in. So they're not entirely wrong. Boko Haram, for example, means West bad, right? Boko Haram. I didn't know that. Yeah, is yeah. that what it means? That's what I was told. And, and they're very literal. That's uh, a very literal movement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And ISIS, whenever people come in, they're indoctrinated into this uh, system. Sometimes online before they come. But in essence, uh, there is this dream of a great Islam that once was extremely powerful and, and um, self-sufficient. And they are correct. There was a time uh, under the leadership of uh, Saladin when uh, Islam was, in fact, the Arabic Islam was, in fact, uh, the most advanced um, the part of the world. Sa Saladin took residents in Alexandria, in Egypt. Um, what they don't say is that Saladin was a Kurd and that uh, he, his uh, uh, senior advisors were Jewish. And one of which was uh, Maimonides, who was uh, the person who, who, who 
was perhaps one of the most uh, prestigious uh, writers of uh, mystic uh, uh, Judaic thought. So, um, yes, there was a time when uh, the Arab world was at its height, but it was not when they invaded people, uh, you know, with the sword, with black flags. It was when Saladin uh, was in power um, and able to lead uh, that world. Uh, and he moved with, to Alexandria because that's also a place of learning. Yeah, yeah, Alexandria was the Greeks and the Romans, you know, and eventually the the Persians at some time, the greatest, uh, I mean, they had the library there, yeah. the, the resources, uh, the intellectual resources. Have you been? Uh, no, I, I haven't been, but it's on my uh, it's on my list. It will take a while. Egypt is not the like place it. to go to at the moment, I think. I was I, there just a few years ago. It was an, uh, a very... Uh, Paranoid Stimmung, yeah. which I know sounds like a sort of a synth band from Germany, but yeah. but yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you can you can go in. I mean, as a person who's been a bit of a war correspondent, there there is a way in. Alexandria is is a place where you can you can get fixers and you can get pretty safely around. Cairo. But anyway, you grew up in Denmark. I, so no, I I uh, grew up in France. Oh, really? Um, because when I was four, we moved to France, where my parents worked as foreign correspondents. They were both journalists. And my father's second piece of advice, because he was a writer and also a writer of books, uh, was to not become a writer. But when I was he done failed. with the UN, <laughs> <laughs> when I became a whistleblower at the UN, then all of these communication jobs at large companies uh, were no longer open to someone who had been um, in the news as a whistleblower. Yeah, you don't um, want to hire a, a blabbermouth. No. Not at a PR firm. No. no. The job of a spokesman is to shut up. Yes. Uh, and so, <laughs> essentially, I, I, um, I ended up writing because I was back to the wall and I had to, I had to make, my, uh, make a living somehow. So the writing I would do... Uh, for these communication professionals would be through PR firms or as a ghostwriter, uh, as a hired gun, essentially. So, so you grew up in France, mm -hmm. then you went to college in France? Then I went to college in the United States. All right, at um, what college? So, no, I went to Brown um, on the East Coast. That's uh, quite a prestigious college. Uh, it, it is. And it I is even a university. <laughs> it is, and they, they call it college just because once you've studied four years, then you get your master's, and I don't know. I don't know that they know the difference between a university and a college, frankly. But um, One gets to appoint professors. <laughs> wouldn't it be nice? Well, at least that's the case in Sweden. Her really? schola, which would be loosely translated to yeah, college, yeah. Uh, they, don't, they can't give uh, that type of tenure. Uh, that is, uh, you know, guaranteed for the rest of your life, uh -huh. basically, while universities can. And I, uh, I haven't found much uh, else that differs between the two concepts. Interesting. Anyway, I'm sorry. Wow. I, I, yeah, I, no, it's been a life where I went back to France for a master's because the prices in the United States are crazy. And, and um, then came back and got this, was able to get these, these uh, various jobs at a law firm and then at the UN and, and, and so on. Um, How old were you when you came into the UN? I was 24, but it was very, very unusual. Essentially, what happened was that they had no idea how to deal with Washington. 
there was a great deal of um, mistrust in Washington towards the UN in general, but also towards this program. And they needed someone who could speak Washingtonian, in essence, tell them what was going on, what senator to speak to, and what to expect. Uh, and at the same time, didn't have a, an American citizenship. So a Dane was perfect. A French Sephardic Dane. That part I didn't push <laughs> in the interview. No. Um, the Danish part was, was easier. And um, um, it was a little funny because in, in both Iraq and in France, people would know that my last name, Susan, is Jewish. But um, at, at the UN, they didn't. Uh, um, it, it just sounds French, you know. Yeah. So I was the only person of my type of background working this operation. Uh, that's also a fact. Mais tu parles français couramment, hein? Oui, oui, absolument. Okay. J'ai grandi you en obviously do, and that's all the French I know. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. You sound like you know. You you sound like you you, you speak it uh, fluently. So I'm great at faking. Um, <laughs> so um, so you get into the UN, and they need help. Uh, with this program, and yeah. the UN's budget is is dwarfed by the budget of the Oil for Food program. Oh yeah, we had uh, just for ourselves to pay ourselves, we had two billion dollars, and the entire budget of the UN per year is two billion dollars. And what exactly was your job Our managing job. this? Uh, not personally, but the the job of the UN in managing this program. What did it entail? Well, it entailed precisely what we failed to do. It entailed making sure that all of the money that was gained from the oil sales went to the people in need. And trust me, there were people in dire need. There was no electricity in hospitals. They couldn't operate. They didn't have painkillers. I mean, just as General Powell uh, and uh, the others uh, preparing for the first Gulf War, they told I Iraq in advance, and it was... Um, uh, confirmed by the UN afterwards, that they would basically bomb them back to the pre-industrial age. And they did so. Before launching their, their forces into Kuwait, they bombed Iraq back to the pre-industrial age. How do you do that? Is, are there special targets? Yeah, or? yeah. Uh, you basically go in with a, with a war plan that resembles a World War II war, war plan. Total war. Total war. And, and total air war, at least. That basically means that you take, a water, uh, you take out um, water and sanitation plants, which in a hot country like Iraq will engender the spread of waterborne diseases, which, as we know, uh, kill most uh, infants and babies uh, that are given powdered milk and affects the mothers, of course, uh, what we would call the most vulnerable groups. And the minorities who were not given, you know, ration cards and etc. Uh, we tried to set up programs for them. So there was a lot of work, and the money was needed. And our job was simply to to make sure that the money went to them, not to Saddam and his cronies, which uh, we found out after the investigation happened, uh, included two thousand five hundred of our very well-known international corporations, who then paid hundreds of millions of dollars in fine to the U.S. and French and other governments, none of which went back to Iraq, whose money they actually stole. I mean, it was their natural resources at the end of the day. Yes. I, I, I'm just going to... So uh, how does the UN work, just for the average listener? 
So I think we need to reframe the, the, the question as how does the UN fail to work? Yes. First of all, because otherwise we cannot come up with an answer. And I think the way the UN fails to work as well as it should is because at the heart of it is an idea, which is to apply the democratic system of government to a global scale. Now, this idea is old. It dates back to uh, Immanuel Kant uh, when he wrote On Perpetual Peace. Um, but without getting too intellectual, uh, Wilson then based the League of Nations on that. And after World War II, they decided, okay, we need a new in institution to, to govern international relations and have debates instead of wars. And that's all very good, but... Uh, when you apply the democratic system to countries that are not themselves democratic, then you're basically saying, come and play bridge with us, but you don't need to play by the rules. So, uh, so that, Because that's basically what Kant wanted in this organization for perpetual peace. He wanted yes. all, all the countries needed to be democratic in order to respect the rules of the game. And That's exactly it. There's, you know, the democracy is the rules of the game, right? Uh, you respect the rules of the game, you, you respect your role in it, and, and uh, you respect other parties. And he had a secret clause because he was not allowed to say something like this at the time without being hung, you know. Uh, uh, his secret clause, which he would share only with people he trusted, was that until such a time... We have to remember this is during the Napoleonic Wars. Until such a time as all, all member states or all states are democratic, the best we can hope for is an alliance of democracies that can, among themselves, not have war between themselves and tyrannies uh, stand together. So it was already... You know, uh, back in the plane, yeah, yeah. Uh, two centuries ago, and and uh, essentially, we deluded ourselves because we needed Stalin to finish off uh, a very very powerful uh, um, German uh, army, and in the aftermath, uh, when they divided up the world, they in essence tried to freeze it, and as we know, the world changes no matter what you try to do. Yes. Um, if nothing else, you can ask a former Yugoslavian. <laughs> yeah. So when the world unfroze uh, in, in the 90s, um, the UN found itself in a situation where we thought, at least I thought, okay, here's an opportunity. We were looking at walls were falling, democracy was spreading. Here is an opportunity to, to get more countries to, to play by the rules. And uh, that was maybe a little bit naive, but trying... I'm from Sweden, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a national sport. Na naivete, yes. yeah. Well, I'm from Denmark, so we're not far behind. Um, but <laughs> but um, uh, of course it didn't work. You know, St uh, Stalin would veto uh, every resolution by the Americans in the Security Council, and the Americans would veto every resolution by, um, by, the, Russian, by the Soviets in the Security Council. Because that's where decisions get made in the UN, right? The Security Council. War and peace decisions, yeah. Yes, and General um, Assembly? What is that for? Well, uh, some would argue that with the advent of the Internet, uh, they could all meet on Skype. 
and talk for free. Yes, well, um, they could. <laughs> but it is a, a chance for uh, diplomats to um, listen to each other's official policies, which are stated on stage. And it's also a chance for diplomats to meet on the sidelines uh, to discuss various issues they have with each other. Um, but to get back to why the UN does not work. Yeah, so, so the reason it doesn't work is that some, some members don't play by the rules. Because they're not democratic. Because they're not democratic. Uh, Would you include France? Well, I haven't said that only, only tyrannies don't play by the rules. Okay. <laughs> uh, the fact that some countries naturally don't play by the rules uh, has caused a certain cynicism to set in the bureaucracy, which has, one, one, one could say, forced or, or encouraged uh, democracies to then say, well, then we're not going to play by some rules either. We're going to go it alone when we want and use the UN when it serves us. So you mentioned Yugoslavia earlier. That was the first conflict that, um, that, that uh, erupted after the, uh, the end of the Cold War. Yugoslavia, which was, uh, you know, Croatia and which was held together by communistic, uh, you know, uh, centralism, fell apart. And at the time, I met a refugee from... Um, uh, from uh, uh, Srebrenica, who told me, when when you see the blue helmets coming, it means you're already fucked. And, he was from Srebrenica, uh, so that I mean, uh, yeah, there was, he there, knew, yes, uh, because it was a French uh, uh, commander who had UN commander, UN commander, who had tried to ring uh, the headquarters in New York and ask for instructions: should we use our guns to protect these refugees? And this was the night before they were separated into buses uh, and all the men were mowed down. Uh, 8,000 men were, were mowed down, basically, by... by uh, Bosnian men against Serbian forces. Uh, yes. yes, yes. And the um, UN did nothing to stop them. And the UN did nothing. Why is that? Uh, because when he rang the UN, uh, there was nobody uh, to answer. There was no crisis center established by the UN security by 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 the UN secretariat uh to be responsive and the UN secretary general would not want to get his feet dirty by making such a decision as uh opening fire uh in defense of civilians so if you can't open fire in defense of civilians then why are what are peacekeepers for what are peacekeepers for? We all want to know now. Well, the places where they're successful are the places where there is a peace to keep, like Cyprus. So uh, these are very good missions where people are paid very good money to go to Cyprus, where we already have a status quo and a, and a peace line between the Turks and the Greeks. And so the UN were sent there as peacekeepers. And one could say that this operation was... Uh, relatively speaking, a, a, a success, um, but it is also extremely corrupt because it serves as a job provider for the uh, well-connected people on the island. And it's misspent resources. We, we no longer need a large force of blue helmets uh, and a huge bureaucracy in Cyprus. So uh, the UN doesn't work because it's also the second reason uh, is that it's badly managed. The previous secretary general couldn't even speak, the one from uh, uh, Korea, couldn't even speak in a way that his own staff could understand. Ban Ki-moon. Ban Ki-moon. 
And what, what do you mean? I mean, there must be one or two, I imagine, Korean translators at the UN who yes. could translate the words of the Secretary General. And that's literally what they needed. They, he, he hired a lot of Koreans on the 38th floor, which is the floor in which the Secretary General, uh, the CEO of the UN, if you want, he resides. is based. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so a lot of Koreans came and started giving people orders because they were the only ones who could trans, uh, you know, translate them to these senior officials, you know. A so lot why of- did he get the job, Ban Ki Moon? Was he uh, had he gone through the long, the long march through the UN from? No, no, no. I Where did he come from? Well, he came from the fact that the UN basically has a. It's not a law, but it's a system of choosing a person from each continent. So Africa had its turn with uh, Boutros Boutros Ghali because technically Egypt is in, in, in Africa, if you don't count the other side of the Suez Canal. And this was Asia's turn. So who could agree on an Asian? Um, it could certainly not be a, Chi- a Japanese because the Chinese have a veto in the Security Council. Uh, and it certainly could, could not be um, a Chinese because the Japanese would pressure the U.S. to say no, let's say. Let's put it that way. And it couldn't be an Indian because of the uh, Chinese India. So basically, the person that becomes secretary general is the person who has done the least to piss off any of the major powers, which basically means that they've done the least in general, but have calmly, um, uh, you know, in their own foreign ministry or at the World Bank, you know, gone to meetings and, and... kept their mouths shut and little by little you just go up the ladder until you because you up. annoy no one you annoy it's, no one yeah it's more it. important than than impressing someone yes i mean if we had a if we had a vote where the world could vote for the secretary general uh, then it would be you know a democratic institution that reflects uh, the wishes of the world and then people would have to present themselves and say this is what i want to do with the un These are the priorities I see, and this is a platform I would like to implement, just like in a in a normal democracy, which we thought America was, but that's another story. It's a federal republic, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and it has an electoral system, electoral yeah. system, yeah. yes. Yeah. And uh, I guess a, a future UN election would have to have some sort of electoral system as well. It would have otherwise to have it'd be a Chinese a federalism, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, But I, I found it interesting because you also mentioned, I'm, I'm, as you know, coming from Sweden, where one is quite used to it. But you write that you you ended up in a strange conspiracy of silence. Well, everybody knew. I mean, I would get a call every every month from the oil traders, the journalists who who report on what's going to be the price of Iraqi crude this month, and. Um, And that was figures, crude oil, and that was figures you needed in yeah. order to know how much food and medicine you could buy for the Iraqi people. Yeah. Yes. But uh, the price was set by the market, quote-unquote, because Kirkuk light uh, is a form of oil that can be um, uh, extracted from the ground in the same place that BP first found, uh, British Petroleum first found oil. It's the cheapest, best quality oil in the world. So if you speak to an oil person, they start salivating, literally, when you talk about Kirkuk Light. So the oil trading, which is all based in Switzerland, they need to know what is the official price 
of Iraqi oil this month because the official price was not the market price, okay? And everybody knew that. At the UN? Well, yes, and in the Security Council. Yes, but not, you know, generally in the public. No, because the press had no interest in in uh, presenting this story. It was so obvious. Everybody knew it. And um, the Iraqi people knew the system was gamed because the, 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 the communities that Saddam Hussein liked the least got the worst rations and the ones he favored the most, you know, they were fat. They literally had a, a, an obesity, obesity problem in some areas of Iraq during what was, you know, supposedly a famine. So um, if every member of the Security Council knows, that means, you know, the U.S. government under uh, both Bush and, and, uh, and Clinton uh, knew uh, that there was cheating going on. And essentially, they cheated by, by making the oil price um, artificially high uh, and then uh, uh, splitting, splitting the, the, the returns between Iraq and oil traders or artificially low, depending on how the market went, artificially low because oil is traded in futures. So they would set a price that they knew would pull the, the, the market one way or another. It would always give them a cut. Yeah. And some of that money, or most of it, would go back to Saddam. Yeah, it would go, go half of it uh, would go back to Saddam, and half of it would, through uh, diplomatic pouches, be either filled flo- with dollar bills. Filled with dollar bills, uh, be flown back to Iraq. And then he could use that money as bribe money for, to international companies and international diplomats. Yeah. Yeah. And buy new police cars and buy new weaponry and buy uh, whatever he needed to defend his regime because his only interest was in getting the resources to stay in power and keep his cronies happy. And who, who, were, uh, who were the main culprits uh, benefiting from this trade on the Security Council? All of them. All of them. And I'm talking about a Security Council where we have seven years of rotation. Uh, so there are... F- Five permanent members? Uh, There's five permanent members, all of whom profited from it. And then there were other members. You have, I mean, this was a a scandal where um, the Indian government uh, basically was... um, Deposed? uh, Deposed the the, uh, South African government. Didn't look too good for Australia? No, didn't look too good for the Australian Wheat Board. I'm glad I paid for my own lunch when I sat down with them. Uh, because their diplomats would basically lobby the UN for contracts, you know. And the French? Uh, yeah, the Minister of the Interior, Charles, Pasqu- uh, Charles Pasqua, was accused of, uh, of having been in on one of these oil deals. But basically everybody wanted in on yes. this uh, thing, and everybody knew about it. And, but the Russians um, took extra... They, well, they, they were, took more than most. The Russian took took more than most, yeah. yeah. But but and the they French, sold also a lot of weapons to Saddam. And then and then there's that. I don't have personally proof of that, but but uh, their weapons certainly weren't American uh, made. But uh, in America, there was one funny contract for the rebuilding of one of the oil fields, and suddenly you have Texaco, which had on its board one of the people who had become. A uh, very senior Bush administration official, um, and another uh, Halliburton was the other company, which basically 
is one of the biggest providers of services to the U.S. armed forces in times of peace and war, especially in times of war. I, I think Halliburton was Dick Cheney and uh, Texaco was Condoleezza Rice. So these two people did business under the Oil for Food program with Saddam. Uh, I'm not saying these two people did the actual business, but they sat on the board of companies that knew what the deal was. And they complied with the 10% you know, bribe. And we know that because the investigation ended up being so thorough that it showed it black and white. And they had to then pay huge fines to the U.S. government because there is an, an anti-corruption uh, law in the United States, which uh, is completely unrealistic uh, to comply with because it basically means that you can't bribe people locally if you're doing business with dictatorships. And, and if we, you're doing business with dictatorships, you have to bribe locally. Yeah, uh, there is just it's that's the system. That's the system, and in a way, it's the system everywhere except here. You have to hire lawyers. Yeah, so we have institutionalized it. In right, a way. we have yeah. institutionalized it. Uh, but corruption is endemic uh, and inherent to the system of of governance, and so there is a lot of large companies. Uh, sort of, I mean, large uh, companies that talk about transparency, that talk about governance, that talk about good governance, uh, meaning that they have so much power that they need to be good members of our society. And in this scandal, we found proof that they were basically saying one thing and doing another. The proof came from a list that Saddam kept uh, in handwritten uh, notes about who bribed him and who he bribed. So this list contained uh, the list of uh, the names of a lot of people, including, uh, to my complete surprise, a word that sounded like the way they were pronouncing the boss of this undersecretary general of the UN that I traveled to Iraq with. And that I stood that you call Pasha in the book. That I call Pasha in the book, because everybody called him Pasha uh, in reality also. And um, and his name was Benon Sivan, and he was a, a, a commensurate uh, a UN bureaucrat who had figured out how to play all sides. And, and uh, they gave him the oil for food program not as a gift, let's put it this way. It was more like a bureaucratic banana peel. Because no one wants responsibility. They all knew it was going to get dirty. You know, business with Saddam is going to get dirty. Oil business is going to get dirty. So someone at the UN hoped this would get him fired at some point or another during the program, and they gave it to him. Yes, just like Kofi Annan was sent to... And uh, Kofi Annan was the secretary general at the time. Yes, but he himself had been sent to Kofi, to, to Yugoslavia by Butchers Butchers Gali because Butchers Gali knew that Yugoslavia was a mess, and he was hoping that his main rival for um, uh, Secretary General, he was hoping that he would make a mess of it down there. Instead, he made friends with the Americans down there, and then they supported his bid for Secretary General, and they wanted uh, Butchers Ghali stopped. There is a big story that we never proved, but uh, we know that basically Saddam tried to bribe uh, Butchers Ghali to the tune of $1 million in a suitcase in order to make the rules of the program uh, such that bribery could occur in it. Because the original rules proposed by the British would not have allowed for any uh, corruption to occur. 
and would not have necessitated a whole bureaucracy of UN people to pretend there's no corruption, right? So once I realized that our real job was basically to sustain a lie. Because you got reports all the time, right? Uh, from people in the field uh, yeah. uh, and questions yeah. from companies who wanted in on the program. Yeah, yeah. And, and you tried to tell your superiors about this. Uh, we did. I mean, I protected all of my Swedish bosses who were, you know, director of program management for the largest and most corrupt enterprise in UN history. Um, and because of the memos we sent up the chain of command, they were clean, super squeaky clean. They came out with no wrongdoing. Because you had two Swedish directors. I had two Swedish directors in a row. Yes. Uh, and, and you told them... Uh, or they found out. No, I told them uh, because I, I was the only continuous person who was there. Uh, I was basically teaching them the ropes when they came in as directors. Because my first director was Ethiopian. And when they realized that he was competent, they took him away from the old... Um, and, uh, which is very typical of bureaucracies in general, not, not just the UN. And then they took in the Swedes, whom you protected. But aren't they competent or are they naive? No, they tried. They tried to 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 make it work. They even tried something that simple as putting anti-blast glass on our UN headquarters because some of the bombings that had occurred, you know, the U the, the US would bomb once in a while for various reasons, non-compliance with the weapons inspectors or some other reason. And once they comply, they bombed the the Iraqi building that housed all of their electronic security surveillance, which they had placed right next to the UN headquarters, precisely in order not to be bombed. Uh, but when the US uh, sent a missile basically straight into the roof down and the whole building exploded from inside, when I arrived in Iraq, it still stood. But the bomb blast somehow had blasted the windows of our own cafeteria at the UN headquarters, which was um, basically headquartered at an old hotel. And for three years, uh, one of my Swedish directors, no, for two years, he tried to get uh, some protections, uh, base, basic stuff, you know, that you do in a war zone, uh, a film that protects glass against hurting people horribly uh, if a bomb blast explodes. And in the end, after the war... Um, when the problem was no longer Saddam Hussein, but became uh, Al-Qaeda um, and its various affiliates. Al-Qaeda used a truck that was bought under the UN for Oil for Food program. They filled it with uh, a thousand pounds of explosives and drove it right under uh, the window of Sergio Biera de Melo, who was the man that uh, I was actually supposed to go back and work for and exploded our, our UN headquarters, uh, killing 20 people and, and wounding 80 people. And the irony here is, is simply that um, I had made an enemy uh, of a person who was the ultimate bureaucrat, Darth Vader type. They had turned to the cynical side, and they were now in a position to uh, basically stop my redeployment to Iraq. And that person delayed my redeployment um, and saved your life. And saved my life. Even though that was not the purpose. So, yeah, making, making enemies of, of incompetent uh, UN bureaucrats uh, can pay off. Yes, in a big way. 
Um, in the book, uh, you mention uh, when you were in Iraq, and there's uh, this moment where your boss, Pasha, who was also supposed to be assassinated when the bomb went off outside of your building, but yeah. was saved by his smoking habit. Yeah, I mean, that's that. Yeah, he did go for a coffee and a cigar when, when the, the bomb blast hit, but there's no way we could have predicted. No, what but in essence, what it tells you is that smoking can save your life. Yeah, yeah, just like <laughs> not putting on your seatbelt in some situations. But, but uh, yeah, he 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 got lucky. He got very lucky because his own office was was right next to to the, he would have crumbled in the building. Yeah, and he was warned, you know, because of his relationships. He also had some relationships with uh, U.S. authorities, and so the day before he was indicted by uh, the. I think it was the, the the New York District Court. He he fled to Cyprus. Yeah. So. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or at least I think. Or well, if you want to delve in, but because uh, because you mentioned when you were visiting Iraq and uh, your boss had made a, a joke, Pasha had made a joke. Yeah. Imitating uh, oh, yeah. One, one of uh, the Iraqi ministers yeah. that you had a meeting with. Yeah. 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 Uh, Vice president, actually. All right. Yes. Yeah. And your. Uh, translators couldn't laugh because then they would be killed. But you, you could tell they tried to laugh. And then you note that uh, the freedom to laugh has never been mentioned in any text of human rights law. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's the first thing that I discovered when I came up to the Kurdish areas was the, the, the you know, the, the, the freedom is not just a, a sort of an, a, a theocrat theocratic thing, you know, a theology or an ideology. It's also a feeling, you know, But this translator knew that if Tahayasin Ramadan, who was the vice president of Iraq at the time, and greeted us with a Magnum 45, uh, a silver Magnum 45 with an ivory handle at his side, and in full military uniform, uh, because it was one of these during one of these uh, pseudo crises, when he sat down, his gun essentially was was pointing towards us. And uh, so when he was looking away, Pasha did a joke like, you know, like him moving his gun. And, and the, the translator had the urge to giggle a bit like we have in, you know, when we're 12 in sex education class, you know, yeah. and we're not allowed to giggle, which makes it worse. Mm -hmm. So in the end, the poor guy basically had to pretend he was crying. And uh, the Iraqi um, vice president at some point was like, what's going on with you? And he was like crying because of the people of Iraq suffering and I felt so bad for the guy because you know who knows what awaits you when you're laughing at something the, the vice president of Iraq says he was actually Saddam Hussein's henchman meaning that when he when Saddam Hussein who was bad enough needed something bad done like gassing the, the Kurds he used Tahayasin Tah Ramadan so not a man you laugh at Crocodile eyes, a handshake of a person who's basically afraid of being poisoned by some, uh, you know... Biological <laughs> agent when yeah, someone touches and, you. Yeah, and uh, a very, very dangerous man to piss off, yeah. So do you think uh, that might be a good idea to include in the UN Charter of Human Rights? Uh, the right to the laugh? The right to laugh? Uh, I think the right to laugh uh, in the face of power uh, is, a, is, a, is a central element of what keeps our democracies alive. It's included, in a sense, in... The fourth estate, we call it the press, the free press, 
And uh, a free press means um, uh, the First Amendment means the right to, to, to poke fun. And that right in currently in America, I mean, we're, the only real news we're getting is from, from, from comedy talk shows, late night comedy talk shows, because CNN... Uh, which I used to work for, so I don't want to talk badly about them. But the truth is, you turn on CNN for news, and all you get in your face are tweets by Trump and counter-tweets and weather reports. And you get one second of, oh, by the way, there were, you know, 30 people killed in a Somali attack on uh, whatever. So American people are not getting their news anymore except from these comedy shows. And they sometimes delve into the issues, unlike the news. And so they seem to care more about presenting American problems to American society that need redressing than the news uh, do. So Pulitzer, uh, the, the famous man who, who started the, the, the Pulitzer Prize, said that, that the republic and, and the press will rise and fall together. I'm afraid right now that there is a situation in the press in America and which I don't talk about in the book, but which I realized later as I'm studying issues related to corruption. The question is always, what is bad management and what is actual corruption? And I realized that when things are poorly managed, usually there's a reason. And that reason, if you, di if you dig uh, far enough, you'll find that, that money is changing hands in a, in a, in a funny way. Yes, because uh, you used the same... T it was so surprising to me when I read your book, because I, I, I just read it now. Mm. And it came mm. out when? Oh, well, it came out... Uh, yeah, it came out in 2009, I believe, and, and, and uh, had some editions after that. There's so many weird points of synchronicity between <laughs> uh, your book and the one I've been writing, but... Uh, I, I do. I used the same trick uh, when I wanted to know what had happened in Sweden during the Second World War, as you do in your book, uh -huh. when you want to try and explain what happened at the UN. Uh -huh. uh, so, uh, quote to quote you, let's follow the money. Yeah. Well, that's how they did Watergate, right? Uh... Yes. And, <laughs> uh, and and what I found out from from your book is that uh, it was not very hard if you understand banking and international law to. Not a very high degree. The French managed to get, be, to get one of their banks to manage the proceeds from the Oil for Food program. So it was Banque Nationale de Paris, right? They were not even graded an A. They didn't even have an A grade. You don't want an A grade bank for this type of work. You want a friendly <laughs> uh, you know, uh, bank in which the majority share was uh, from an arms dealer who, ha who lived in Britain under some money protection and had basically uh, been a friend of the Saddam uh, regime and done arms deals in, in the... Uh, Did the French government own... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A part of this bank as well? Oh, they used to, and it was privatized. And I believe his ma- his name was uh, Ahmed Auchi. He's like a Khashoggi, one of these guys. That What's a Khashoggi? A Khashoggi was... Maybe the biggest uh, multi-millionaire in the world in the 80s because he was an arms dealer in the Middle East. And he made a lot of the arms deals between people you wouldn't believe uh, that are on opposite sides of conflicts. And uh, this person owned the Banque, Banque Nationale de Paris. And in essence, they quickly paid a fine because what they faced, according to the law, was the losses of their banking license in the United States. But they employed the right lobbyists who were able to go and pay the right people on the right committees, and they got away with a fine. And they they were able to hold $73 billion worth of cash in their accounts, meaning they could play with that on the markets and and make money for themselves the whole time because they had that sure amount of money coming in every month. So that means the French government had a a real interest in seeing the Oil for Food program continue, right? Uh, Yes, but and they also try. Uh, they wanted to lift the sanctions, or yes, but that was rhetoric. When when the U.S. finally uh, invaded Iraq, uh, and they said, "Okay, we can lift the sanctions," it was the Russians in the Security Council who said, "Well, wait a minute. Uh, you said we would lift the sanctions when you found all the weapons of mass destruction." Now, where are the weapons of mass destruction? And so they held it back until their companies had fulfilled their their contracts for a while. So it was actually doubly, triply ironic situation. But with the Russians, at least, you know, it's expected that they would would, uh, game the operation. Because they're not a democracy. Because they're not a democracy. And and, uh, in the oil industry, anything goes, okay? Uh, We all know it. But this was institutionalized. Our job was to avoid this type of, uh, of of corruption, and I mean, thanks to Saddam Hussein for for keeping a list. You know, you want to know who you bribe and who you don't bribe. And also, you know, that list uh, he thought probably would protect him uh, because if you know he fell, yeah, and that list got out, yeah, a lot of people would be implicated, and that's exactly what happened when America went in. Right. So. That's some things that I couldn't write in the book at the time, but that became clear through the person I had been talking with, who was, uh, uh, you know, not someone that I can mention because of security reasons. But the fact that there was a list surprised me. I was like, who would who would keep a list? But then some of Saddam Hussein's closest upper rank people um, uh, got away by sharing the list with the Americans. Only they thought that by sharing the list, the, the Americans would be happy to see this go public. And it turned out that uh, none of the democracies wanted to see the, this list go public either. So it was um, uh, this list of, of uh, you know, corrupt entities, 
and, and again, we're talking about countries and we're talking about 2,500 international companies. We're talking about Volvo. We're talking about Mercedes. We're talking about Siemens. We're talking about BNP, of course. We're talking about major companies. I'm pretty sure we didn't see anything in the Swedish press about Volvo being implicated in a corruption scandal uh, at the UN. I can't remember what their level of implication was, but but it may have been minor. I don't know. Uh, but but um, uh, you, you would have seen it because it was there would there would have been a court judgment. But I would have to check on this information. I mean, we we need to be clear with our audience that that we only speak things we know for sure. And but I remember them as as being on the list. And in essence. Um, they called in KPMG, which is an independent consulting firm, to verify whether this list had any correlation in reality. And they certified that it was a true list. And at that point, I called the office of uh, Kofi Annan and I told them, I mean, this was the entire reason they hired me in the first place. I had worked in Congress. And I could see there were eight investigations going on in Congress during an election year in the United States against uh, the UN um, based on this oil for food program fraud that was beginning to emanate in the press. It was first published in an Iraqi newspaper. Almada. Almada. And then um, the CIA broke into the headquarters of the uh, person they thought was in possession of the list. Phones started ringing around the globe because... Shit hit the fan. Shit hit the fan, essentially. And um, I could not believe for the life of me that that the guy I had worked with, who was incompetent and who was, uh, you know, uh, a, a real Byzantine type of old UN manager, but who was also funny. He was a bit theatrical and and people grew to like him uh, for for reasons that I cannot really un- understand myself. But he was a personality. But you liked him. And even I had, no, I mean, I, I, I thought he was too incompetent at the end to continue working for, so I, I quit. But I was really surprised. So I myself wanted to see an investigation conducted because I wanted to know whether I'd spent three years uh, working for a completely corrupt uh, system or whether I had worked for one that was merely incompetent. And, Are um, they mutually exclusive, Michael? Uh, n- yes, because, yes, I mean, now you ask me a new question I've never thought about, but but uh, they are, because comp- because corruption is is efficient, whereas um, uh, mismanagement is inefficient. Yes. But corruption is very efficient. It, uh, it, it makes money flow, uh, and it clarifies deals. So, for example, the Romans, when they would invade Gaul or France, as we call it now, or, or any other country... They I would, still call it Gaul, but still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would have a, an allocation of 10% for bribes. You bribe the local leaders that don't want to fight and that are ready to join us, you know, you bribe them. It's normal. Like yeah, it, yeah. So, so the fact that we are closing our eyes to this only makes it worse and i i was an accidental whistleblower in the sense that i wasn't even working there when uh the act that led to me being called a whistleblower happened but no but uh, as when i, I rem- called the office basically sorry when i called the office of kofi Annan, they said no no don't worry it'll blow over they didn't understand the size of this and i think kofi Annan would have had to resign if he didn't do what I suggested to do, I, I was like, I can't reach him through his own staff. I'm going to write an op-ed that I know he's going to read. 
And uh, it was published by the Wall Street Journal. And all it did was call for an independent investigation of the program. And then Kofi Annan appointed one of the best uh, inv investigators in the world uh, who had done the Swiss um, uh, you know, gold investigation, the Vatican investigation before, and was a former uh, president of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker, who is so old that his middle name is Adolf, uh, and who's so tall that basically uh, he could play basketball at the age of 90. Um, and uh, six foot seven or something. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, I was really, really tall. And so Adolf Volker. <laughs> well, Paul was the name he preferred to go with. He had then enormous resources. Uh, I think it was about 30 investigators and, and just about as many million dollars uh, to verify every little detail of this. And it, it, it worked very well because our job was not only to, to seek compliance with the program's aims, which was to help the poor. Uh, but we kept records. The UN is good at one thing. It is at keeping records. So they forensically took all of the UN's computers related to the programs and went through every detailed contract, compared it to the KPMG investigation, and then very easily laid out the cases, which were then tried in courts in democracies and ignored in tyrannies. And they were all corrupt. Yes, I, it's quite a, it's quite that simple. Yes, unfortunately, I, I had hoped that it would be a little better than that, but but uh, no, the it was corrupt. It was a corrupt practice according to our own laws, and so they had broken our own laws uh, that govern corruption, and they had broken the uh, spirit and text of UN Security Council resolutions, which are binding on all nations. Uh, and I know this must have hurt. I, I thought you had grown up in Denmark. So I, I wrote a question uh, based on a quote of yours concerning the culture at the UN. Uh -huh. The quote is, the mania of not calling things by their name, end quote. And I thought it must be particularly annoying for you being Danish, since I think you Danes <laughs> have an expression for that, right? You should call a shovel a shovel. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's many expressions. I discovered that one is based in an old racist slur, which was call a spade a spade. And spade is, of course, we think of it as a shovel, but it was a nickname for a, 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 Even black, in Denmark? a black person. No, in America. Oh, right. So and, uh, in, in Denmark, it's still a shovel is a shovel. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not no. a racist slur there. It's just I didn't translate it to spade here because yeah. I knew that would be... No, but in Denmark, of course, provides uh, insulin through the company Novo Nordisk, and uh, they were in on the corruption. Uh, and the Danish government and, and the, uh, the intelligence agencies of Denmark knew everything that was going on. They are, of course, also, uh, you know, uh, when you work for a government, you also have relationships with large companies. And then, of course, you know, when the movie comes out, you get an invitation from Novo Nordisk to speak to their uh, ethical committee uh, so that they may learn from this experience and, and maybe become better at not being corrupt and etc. But do you think corruption was larger for, for some countries than others? Because the U.S., Saddam didn't want to pay a kickback to American companies, did he? No, well, yeah, he 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 did. I mean, he Saddam didn't have to do anything he didn't want to do. 
but he needed to repair some oil fields, and only Halliburton uh, or Cargill, one of these companies, knew how to do it because they had done the original. So there was a $300 million deal struck there, which was very, very ironic at the time because basically those two countries were technically at war. And yet they were doing, and they were under sanctions. And so under this UN program, they did, yeah, they transacted and they transacted just like everybody else by... Uh, but I thought the French wanted most of the contracts. And, and they got uh, And the American companies tried to set up front com- uh, French front companies or affiliates and... Right, the, the, there was some of that. Uh, I, I don't know in those particular cases if they did that, but there was some of that, of course. I mean, and and even French companies would set up Lebanese, you know, uh, uh, front companies. And so uh, one day I got a call uh, from a Swiss uh, uh, magistrate asking me, "Is it legal or not to use front companies uh, under the UN for oil for food program?" Uh, and I was like well, let me get back to you. And I called the legal department where a Russian guy is head of the department. And he says, oh, this is all political. We cannot respond to questions from a magistrate. It has to come through the, the you know, the official channels. And so I was like, I read the text myself. Uh, and this and, was from the legal department at the UN. Yeah, yeah. But when you put a, a, a Russian career bureaucrat as head of the legal department, you're, you're, you're going to get the advice that you get, the legal advice that you get. And um, his name was Vladimir Golitsyn. Uh, and um, I checked myself uh, what the rules were governing the, uh, the program, very thick documents with all sorts of, you know, uh, fine print. And it was not legal. And so I took it on myself to just call back that uh, that magistrate in Switzerland and say, no, it's not legal. And they say, well, can you put it on paper for us? And I'm like, no, I can't get anyone to sign it. And they were like, what is the problem? You know, and then I was the one who was, you know, I felt. Incompl- so what was the problem? Why wouldn't anyone sign uh, a document that uh, merely stated what was official UN policy that they could find basically online, right? Yeah. Uh, because the UN works for the member states, right? So unless it comes through an embassy, it's true. The guy had a point. Uh, they had to make their request. Otherwise, we would be answerable to every single person or whatever in the world. But why can't the UN reply to an obvious question like that? And that is because if you work at the UN beyond a certain level, and that's maybe the level right above the one where I was, uh, you are answerable to one or more member states if you want your career to continue, which means you report or you help them in situations like this. So a Russian working for the UN, it's inconceivable that they wouldn't report whatever issue there is uh, or help them out. Uh, but same for, for uh, many, many d- democratic countries. Uh, you have people regularly reporting to their own intelligence services about what goes on at the UN. That much was very clear from your book. Yeah, yeah. But also the second rule of making a career at the UN, which is make sure that the buck doesn't stop with you, right? Ah, yeah, that's an important rule. And um, it's... it's, uh, it's, Why is it important? Well, because taking responsibility means taking action. And the last thing a bureaucrat wants to do is to take action. 
because if you take action, people notice you and they, they, they see you as a free operator and someone who's capable of actually making a decision and taking action is not somebody they want in the bureaucracy at the United Nations. Why? Uh, it's because it messes with uh, the incompetence, which is essentially enshrined in the UN Charter. And that incompetence is ensured by the fact that we have created a club in which not all members are required to play by the rules. We have allowed, uh, you know, I mean, not, not even a bridge club could function like that, right? So, so we should not be surprised that the UN is sometimes uh, uh, corrupt or sometimes mismanaged. We, su we should be surprised when it is doing good things and when it is not mismanaged. But we're and paying quite a lot for this. Well, and in the Sweden guys, you are, yeah. Yeah, and the guys working for it are not taxed on their salaries yeah. and they have diplomatic immunity. Oh, yeah, it was so nice. It, I never had to check my bank account. No, I, I, I can imagine. But, yeah. I mean, with diplomatic immunity, in essence, you don't even have to take responsibility. No. Responsibility is, is like uh, something that goes around and around and around. And uh, we spoke of Srebrenica uh, earlier and... Um, I once heard a, a UN bureaucrat who was in charge of um, Yugoslavia. At the time, I was writing my thesis for my master's, and I interviewed a number of people, including the general, uh, General Morillon, who was in charge and trying to call the UN to get orders to, to fire back, to, 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 to protect uh, the people whom the Serbians were about to kill, and got no response. But yeah, the buck stops nowhere. So typically what you do when you get a memo calling for action is you slap a yellow sticker on it and you pass it on to another department and uh, ask for advice. And if they are smart, they'll quickly slap a yellow sticker on it and send it right back to you uh, telling you, uh, uh, we think you are uh, authorized to take your own advice, and then you can send it to the Office of Legal Affairs because then you're absolutely sure that it'll take a month before you get anything back. And, and, um, and so by then, the decision, the time for the decision is over. Is over. Yes. yes. Yeah, it was beautifully, beautifully put. But I, the, the, the rule of uh, handling the internal workings of the UN that I liked the most was your number one rule. The truth is not a matter of fact. Right. It is a product of consensus. Yes. In that world, uh, that is true. In the real world, the truth is the truth. Uh, Except in, in Sweden, it's not. It's a product of consensus. That's why... Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I no, mean, definitely. In, in, in Denmark, you can also say that because of our culture. In, in Scandinavia in general, uh, we have a high level of political correctness, which, of course, makes it an ideal ground for, for comedy because... Um, Political correctness is also a, a way to institute uh, not tyranny, but totalitarianism of thinking. Uh, once something, uh, once you're being shunned for, for stepping outside a certain zone, and once that zone becomes so big as to encompass basic, huge questions of politics, then you have created a society in which, without humor, you're basically left with do I want to pick an argument or do I want to have a chill dinner with my friends? And if you're not politically, if you don't, if you just want to live a normal life and be happy, then you don't pick arguments and you stay politically correct. How can you have a chill dinner with your friends if they're too afraid to laugh? Uh, well, then you have to pick your friends well. <laughs> I guess you do. <laughs> 
I, 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 one of the other points of weird synchronicity between your book and mine is a quote you use at the beginning of a chapter, which is, mm-hmm. quote, resistance is futile, you will be assimilated, end <laughs> quote. You're yeah. quoting the Borg from Star Trek. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I've actually been described in interviews uh, 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 or uh, questioned in interviews how I would describe Swedes. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's the quote I use. Well, I mean, I I was very afraid uh, when I first started uh, at the UN of becoming part of of a bad system. Uh, because I had written my thesis about the former Yugoslavia, where so many things went wrong. But I also knew that there are, uh, you know, a lot of kids in Africa who wouldn't be alive today if UNICEF had not come in with food and, and if the World Food Program had not been there to deliver it. And you mean uh, Angelina Jolie? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> actually, she she is more competent to run the UN than any of these secretary generals. She knows more about what it is to be in a refugee camp. She's actually visited some uh, than than these bureaucrats do. Um, and if you've been in movie production, uh, you understand action a lot better than you are, than you do uh, in the UN bureaucracy. But I think, yeah, you, you get assimilated because of that, precisely because of that quote, uh, which is um, the truth is not a matter of, of, of fact. Uh, it is a matter of consensus. So when you start out, People think it's kind of funny to have a young guy around who asks questions that are kind of taboo. Everybody knows not to ask this because they know that the truth is, you know, that uh, the Office of Human Human, uh, Resources, for example, does not reward people based on, uh, you know, good results because results cannot be measured in in a bureaucracy. They reward people based on, on ageism, in essence. And so when you wonder about these things, uh, then people don't answer and they kind of smile behind your back or sometimes in front of you and you're like, you know, cute kid. Yeah. And the fact is I was, I was becoming less and less of a cute kid and, and uh, I was taking on responsibility at a rate that was unusual at the UN because people normally duck responsibility. So at the end of a meeting... When they were like, okay, so who 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 takes this, who takes that, and who takes this, and so when nobody raised their hands, I would basically be like, okay, let's let's do it, you know. I, I <laughs> you really tried, dumb as it may say uh, sound today. I believed in the mission. Uh, I did believe that if we're gonna keep that country under sanctions and under Saddam, it was our responsibility to make sure they got food, medicines, and you know, electricity and things like that. And that it was our mission to make sure that people who are already rich are not stealing from these uh, people, some of whom were among the most destitute on the planet. Uh, talk about the Iraqi Shia population in the south. Uh, not having clean water in, in temperatures of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit um, or, or electricity is cholera started spreading. Uh, old diseases that basically we hadn't heard of since World War One spread and, and killed Counting in the millions is, is, is not a crazy thing to do when you're talking about the number of Iraqi children died. But there was, of course, a whole propaganda machine also that used this as a way to, use, to, to, to lift sanctions in a way that would be unconditional, which basically meant that Saddam would be free to use the money to buy tanks. And that would not help necessarily uh, feed the Iraqi people uh, more. He would just feed his cronies and leave the others to, to feed themselves. 
But anytime you impose sanctions on a country, you're going to uh, enable illegal transfers of, of, of goods, um, smugglers, right? And there are entire countries that basically have only one method of, of, of uh, revenue, which is smuggling. Afghanistan is one, for example. The north of Iran, a lot of the Kurdish areas, without smuggling, they, they, they can't uh, really, they don't have a business model. So we have to be very, very intelligent when we impose sanctions. And our type of sanctions used to be called smart sanctions. Uh, and I say this making quotes with my hands because, of course, they were so smart that uh, some uh, rich, very rich people uh, were able to enrich themselves even more on the back of, of uh, the people we were trying to help. And... Um, no, it makes you want to vomit, you know. When On the you, when back you, when, and sometimes the corpses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, what is wrong with France? <laughs> I'm asking. Apart from the French, you mean? Uh, well, those that would be the obvious answer. But I'm, because I, I was wondering, because you're recounting in the book, you're recounting uh, this power struggle between Paul and de Villepin. Is that yeah. how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah, de Villepin, yeah, de Villepin. Yes, I guess. Yeah? And he was born in Morocco, like your father. Oh, he was? Yes, he was. Oh, he was Pinot, I think, maybe from Tangiers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was a very international sort of uh, no, island. Just, uh, the the reason Morocco, I'm asking yeah. is because they seem to be one of the main, or at least they seem to me to be the main culprit from, uh, from the Western sphere uh -huh. of influence in, in the scandal at the UN. They had already sold Saddam Hussein a nuclear reactor back in the early 80s, yeah. right? The Osirak yeah. that yeah. the Israelis bombed. Yeah. And had they not bombed it, Saddam Hussein would have had nukes. Oh, yeah, by, by uh, 86 or 87, full, full capacity. So good on Israel for bombing. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, what the Iraqis said was uh, when they were building it, uh, they, they were in the middle of a war with Iran. And they said, don't worry, Iran, we're not building it for you. We're building it to attack Israel. So it was quite clear what the threat was. and uh, They wanted to nuke Israel, basically. Yeah, and, and the capacity of this, uh, or, or at least have the threat to nuke them, which then allows you to do quite a few things. But, yeah, the Ozirak reactor was, was, was basically almost uh, ready to, 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 to start enriching uranium at a, at a pretty... I mean, this was higher technology than even the Iranians have now uh, in some respects. This was a, a, a turnkey, uh, you know, sale, which um, enriched people at a, at a, at a, on a scale not even, you know... In France. Yeah. And then when the sanctions set in, they continually wanted to lift the sanctions, although they didn't want to lift the sanctions because they still wanted to take kickbacks from, from the sales, right? You could say there are several powers of interest in France, and there were those who act behind the scenes, and there's those who act in front of the cameras. And uh, so to, to say France as one unit is very, very difficult, because uh, both political parties have their own uh, intelligence communities. Oh, uh, really? Yes. Which, uh, so the conservative... And the socialists, yes, because those are the sides in France. Well, they go to Africa and come back with suitcases of cash that finance their political campaigns. Okay, this is like a very, very well-known thing, uh, but it it has to be repeated sometimes. Um, 
So why France? What's uh, wrong with them? What's wrong with France? My God, that's a big question. Well, for one, I think they're partially dehydrated. <laughs> uh, all this coffee and, uh, you know, uh, from the morning and, and then they go straight to wine. And, and uh, I think their level of uh, hydration is, is too low. And they're a bit like Italians in a bad mood, you know, like Italians, but like in a... In a yes, but Italians just yell. They're not going to beat you up. Yeah, no, they, it's not serious. The, no. the French really are pissed off. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that there is an elite in France that rules the country, no matter who you vote for. And uh, that's why I think it's very dangerous, because Fran France is, is the next candidate uh, in Europe for a right-wing government. And when I say right-wing in France, it's very different from right-wing in Scandinavia. Uh, what we would call the moderate right wings of Scandinavia, right wing in, in France is Vichy, right? These people now account for a third of the electorate, and they're after one year of Macron. Uh, and they are Vichy because the French never really dealt with the Vichy culprits after the war. Or... Well, eventually they did, um, and uh, credit has to be given uh, where credit is due. And Jacques Chirac recognized the role of France in deport deporting and killing Jews. And he did so very publicly. And it was, uh, I mean, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due. But it took that long. What the consensus was in France was that France had been liberated by the French, even though they you know, constituted very few of the, of the actual people that died on the beaches of Normandy. You know, when I was young, my, 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 my father took me to the beaches of Normandy. I didn't know what was going on. I was 10 years old, and he took me to this enormous cemetery. And, uh, Where all the white crosses are. Yeah, you have rows and rows of white crosses uh, spanning further than the eyes can see. And he said, uh, you see all these uh, people? I said, yeah, well, there's a lot of dead people. And he said, well, they died so that you could be free. And at 10 years old, I don't know that I really fully understood what freedom meant. So I asked my dad, well, what, what's, what's freedom? You know, and, and um, essentially he said, well, I'm a journalist. I'm allowed to work and to tell it as it is because we live in a free country. Uh, Even though you were in France at the time. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and the French press, I mean, was when my when we first moved there, my father had to submit questions in advance in order to be in, in order to interview the president, for example. And he would then do his own uh, questions anyway, and then next, no more, no more, you know, uh, no more interviewing of public officials. We went to cover some, uh, you know, big demonstrations after an oil spill in Normandy, for example. And uh, it wasn't even on the news, in the French news. But all of Brittany knew about it because and, uh, there had been a blast at a nuclear plant. It was not in the French news. So there was essentially censorship until and during the Mitterrand era. And then there was self-censorship, which in France is a funny thing. Everybody knew that uh, Mitterrand... Uh, had had uh, various affairs and that uh, one of his daughters was living uh, illegitimately, illegitimate daughters was living in the Elysee Palace with him and the former wife and all that. Unimaginable in a Puritan country like, 
like France and from a taxpayer money unimaginable in, in Scandinavia. But very sort of okay in France. Um, but so what's wrong with the French? Um, I, I think there's many things that are right with the French. Uh, the French gave us, uh, you know, a, a, a huge impetus uh, for for the ideology uh, that stands behind democracy. But we have to we have to remember one thing when we talk about democracy and tyranny. It's a struggle, and it's a bloody struggle. And that's why I go back to the beaches of Normandy. Unfortunately, the way democracy has spread throughout Europe. If we look at the 2,000-year span between the Declaration of Independence here and the, and the Declaration of Human Rights in France, the spread of democracy has involved a number of huge European wars in which more people died than in all of the Middle East's conflicts combined times, you know, a million. You know, we're, we're looking at 50 to 70 million people dying during World War II, including Russia, including, you know, every front. So democracy spreads in the world only violently because dictators never give up power without a fight. And it doesn't help to pay them off. You, that, that's what we've been doing. Yeah. We've been paying them off to do our bidding, yeah. but not to help their own citizens who then become extremists and who become a problem for us when they show up in our subways and, and, and convince young people to blow themselves up. You know, back back in Denmark, we have to go through White House security just to get into uh, Politiken, uh, which is a newspaper. Yeah. Uh, in France, uh, you know, every synagogue there are cops in in, in front of uh, the synagogue and 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 plainclothes uh, um, security guards that have to be employed. You can't even go to a, a kosher butchery. And ironically, that's where most Muslims buy their meat in Paris uh, without uh, seeing police and special guards because they were attacked with Kalashnikovs. I don't know if you've ever ever seen the efficiency of a Kalashnikov in an, in an attack on civilians, but it, it is nothing like a gun or even these AR-15s they, they have here. It, it is the most efficient killing machine uh, you can and they're big bullets they really kill people they don't maim them uh, you know it's if you've been hit by a kalashnikov your chances of survival are much less than than if you've been hit by uh, any other rifle uh, so we're dealing with a very insecure europe within which france i don't think is playing a negative role overall Uh, France believes in Europe. Uh, France believes in certain uh, uh, values, at least uh, on open mic. Um, there is a difference between principle and practice. Yes, but at least they figured out the principle part. And you know the French. Uh, if something works in practice, you still have to see if it works in principle. Um, <laughs> that's the basis of their math um, but what's wrong with the French I don't know there's so much that's good about them that I, I, I hesitate to make a you grew up in the country a, a generalization I'm... but I, I am more Danish in my values than I am French I have, on, I have only experienced France as, as, a, as a rather corrupt system where, where the well-to-do are connected and can get their kids into the right places. And when the ones who are not are essentially uh, uh, screwed by the system unless they organize. And the problem, of course, then is that 
the syndicates in France, as we see now, you can't move, there's no train running and all of that, uh, are not organized in a way that's, that, that makes dialogue very uh, productive. They're organized in a way that where the only way to really end the strike is to pay off the leader of the, the syndicate because they can, I mean, they can paralyze a country. Yes. And so when it's gone on for too long, you know, the practice is, as I understand it, that money gets transferred. To these. Well, that only works as long as the elite has money. Uh, yeah, I mean, but these these syndicates, I mean, these syndicates, I call them syndicates, which here is a criminal criminal's uh, uh, connotation. But uh, you um, mean unions, guilds, and unions? Yeah, uh, they have a war chest which allows them to go uh, on strike. But in Scandinavia, uh, they are required to reach agreement. Otherwise, the government steps in and acts as the final authority. And if the people don't agree with it, they're fired. I mean, that's it. Uh, so there is no impetus to reach agreement in France. There is a huge impetus to create conflict because when another, when one party is in power, the other party has every uh, reason to to finance the continuation of strikes against the, the 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 party that's in power. So that's one of the things that's wrong with France. But internationally speaking, France has been with Britain and with all the permanent five members of the Security Council. Uh, the biggest sellers of arms in the world. So the Security Council was created with the mission of maintaining peace in the world. And the five uh, top uh, permanent members of the Security Council, Russia, China, France, and the United Kingdom, are the biggest traders of weapons in the world. With these two facts alone, I think we've understood the problem. Yes. I would say we have. Oh, right. Um, so uh, you got one piece of advice from a guy called Trevor in the book, mm -hmm. also spooky, um, because he was probably a spy for the British, or could have been. At least that was his nickname at the UN. You can be a spy even if everybody knows you're one. I'm sure, that, but <laughs> aren't they called diplomats? That's what they're called. <laughs> so um, he gave you a piece of <laughs> he gave you a piece of advice when when you started, and I was hoping you could give that piece of advice to me and my listener. Yeah, I mean, he he. I thought he was pulling a prank on me because he took me aside one week after I was hired at the UN. My boss was fired, and the boss of my boss arrived and decided to take me with him to Iraq. So I'm, I'm traveling to Iraq with an undersecretary general, which is as high as it gets below the secretary general. And this senior UN bureaucrat was also the chief of all these blue UN guards. So he had two jobs in one. Imagine how many people are able to do two jobs in one and be expected to. But Trevor took me aside and said, listen, you're going to come under a lot of pressure I know for a fact that the Iraqis have visited your apartment. I'm really there a bit naive because I'm really thinking these things are impossible and that. But basically, the reason I was hired by the guy who, by this Ethiopian guy called Johannes Mengesha, who was really a nice, nice guy, is because he needed someone to write English because everybody else wrote Bolapuk, as we call it in Danish. And what does that mean? Just It just means a language that, that is... Indecipher indecipherable uh, for a normal person and even for a per diplomat. 
And so writing grammatically correct English is a rare skill, in fact. And he said, people are wondering, you know, how, how a 24-year-old guy who says he's French, but is also from Denmark and is also from, he had done his research on me, and gets hired. And his, he was pretty sure that I was uh, in it for the French. But he was prying, he was asking, he was whatever. And when he finally realized that I was a complete amateur, or at least he realized that it was a possibility that I was a complete amateur, which I was, he gave me a piece of advice. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, there's the anti-sanction people, there's the pro-sanctioned people, and there's the people of us that are trying to make the program work. And he was one of them. And he says, in making the decisions, you have to be your own man. Meaning that you can't just go along with whatever is decided in a meeting uh, of people who are afraid to make a decisions, as we spoke about earlier. Uh, that you have to listen to your own principles. And Spooky, of course, hoped that these principles would be pro-Western in, in the sense of this being a conflict between Iraq and the West. And as it turned out, I also thought I was pro-Western until I realized that uh, it wasn't you know, that simple. Uh, but who else are you supposed to be pro? And the truth is, you're not supposed to be pro anything else than what you believe in. And that can only be rooted in value and facts. And so, um, yeah, I, I value that piece of advice. Um, I put it at the beginning of the book, uh, not only because it happened at the beginning of the story, but because in the end, when I made the decision to uh, resign and when I made the decision to speak out and to um, go public with, with you know, information that had come out, uh, I was being my own person. But it, it is far easier in life to just comply with whatever is the truth of the day. The consensus. The consensus. Um, you will probably have a more stable uh, life where you don't have to rely on yourself to be entertaining or insightful or, you know, uh, you're fighting upriver, you're going against the system. And every system need, needs jesters, right? Even the king of France needed a jester in the, yes. in the court for the court to be a fun place to be and not just like a, you know, a depressing uh, environment. Uh, playing that role, though, means that you have to, of course, doubt everything and, and, and until proven, uh, you know, correct. correct. And, and so <laughs> we, it's our job, in a sense, uh, to try to be our own man or woman uh, on this planet when we are writers. I used to teach writing at uh, New York University, and I said to the, to the students there, I'm going to give you some tools that are going to allow you to persuade people very, very effectively. But I, I cannot give those tools to you as a writer if you're going to use them for, for wrong or to, to spread lies. Of course, I can't check, but um, it is true that narratives, stories are what makes the world go round. And so when we speak about the consensus versus the, the truth being based on fact, we are, fact we, we are in fact talking about a world that is, um, that is made to go round uh, to, to, uh, to profit those who are able to distribute, display, build uh, this narrative. And it takes uh, quite a few resources 
not only to um, conduct the surveys necessary to figure out how your narrative is going to play to certain populations, but to figure out how and when to distribute it online or otherwise. Um, and it takes money to uh, bribe journalists because journalists are bribed in our world, in democracies. Uh, I've seen it happen at an age that was even before I joined the UN. So <laughs> you can imagine uh, what I was hoping for. Um, but it goes full circle. But stories are maybe the operating system of the human body. That's how we understand our reality. And so the truth now can only come from comedy shows or drama shows that we see on Netflix that take on things like the pharmaceutical complex or things that we can't really speak about in the press. Why? Because you open Time magazine and you see a huge advertisement for Boeing. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have enough money to, to buy a Boeing airplane. So what is, what is Boeing doing advertising in Time magazine? One explanation is that their, their image as a company uh, deserves to be advertised for name recognition. Um, as if we choose a Boeing or an Airbus to go from France to, uh, you know, uh, New York. We don't know which plane that cheap airline we is going to give up us. Yeah, and we just show up and hope it has wings. Try to stick in and, you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, we hope it has wings. Uh, but uh, the reason they place these ads and the reason the pharmaceutical industry places these ads and the reason many companies that have subsidiaries that are involved in, you know, financing wars and things like that, place ads, they are uh, in order to prevent the editors of the news uh, division from making uh, choices that would be in the best interest of the reader's information. So a good editor is supposed to be able to sift through the news and see what is most important for our readership to know uh, in order to, to function as good citizens in, in a democracy. That's why Pulitzer said the democracy and, and its press will rise and fall together. Today, we have major media companies uh, that are bought by um, a surplus of advertising. Uh, that basically means that if they do a certain report that, that uh, pisses off somebody at a large company or, or the interests of a large company, it's okay, it'll run. But the next year... Will that editor still have a job? And before that, will that reporter be reassigned to a place to have a blog somewhere and then slowly, uh, yeah, yes. So we're looking at the reason why we, 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 we still go on CNN on our, on our phone, right, to see what the news is. And all we get is ads for things we said the other day about, oh, my neck hurts, so we get an ad about a neck uh, medicine, okay. But essentially, yeah, the news is, is, is bought and paid for. Uh, occasionally, um, in the opinions uh, column, uh, one gets to argue. But even then, when I wanted to blow the whistle on the on the on the UN, I went to the New York Times first, and uh, they wouldn't run an anti-UN piece because it was not in the interest of the Democratic Party, which they were, you know, following their platform. And so you have to know the game. And having worked at CNN, having worked on Capitol Hill, and having worked in the field as a journalist, I understood that 
okay, this had to run in the Wall Street. The only people that would run this and that would be big enough would be the Wall Street Journal um, because it was in their interest to run it. Because they were on the conservative. Because they were on the conservative side. And so by extension, I found myself in the Fox News uh, headquarters and they were like, are you ready to go on camera saying Kofi Annan knew? And I'm like, I'm ready to go on camera saying you knew. Uh, <laughs> you know, but also saying, you know, ask him for yourself because I was a journalist and I know what they do to whistleblowers. They lionize them when, when, when it suits them and then they, they, they uh, shove them to the side and, and basically... Freeze them out. They freeze them out and they portray them as self, you know, self-interested people who are trying to um, advance their own ego or something. But the truth is, it's never, it's never people over 35 who are whistleblowers. Very rarely. It's young people. Uh, it's usually young, eager, competent people between the ages of 25 and 35 who uh, find something wrong in the course of very important work, because very important work is assigned to people that are young enough to take responsibility. Uh, and this includes all bureaucracies, including at the Pentagon, includes, including you know, in, in places we wouldn't think. Young people get a lot of responsibility. There you, I mean, Edward, Edward Snowden, whom they called a hacker, was a fully trained digital spy. Look where he ended up. You know, the gulag. Yes. He was a whistleblower, but he knew that he would have to sacrifice his own life or liberty. And uh, country. Uh, yeah, and, and, and citizenship and, 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 and freedom uh, in order to, to tell his country some truths, which somehow, despite what is supposed to be a free press, has not even registered with us. And so now we're reaching the second phase of the dig digital revolution where privacy is basically a thing of the past. And without privacy, the founders of this country understood uh, that without privacy, uh, you can't have democracy. And yet, Silicon Valley, they all met with Trump when he was first elected, even though they disliked him uh, extreme, in the extreme. I mean, they came from San Francisco to meet. And shortly later, a law was passed that basically allows any company that has any of your information to sell it for profit online. So even a hospital, if they send their, your information to another hospital that's bound by medical rules of privacy, they can use a company in the middle that is a, providing a service of transmission, and that company can sell anything they want down the river. So we're really talking about us here and now being subject to conditions that lead us naturally towards an erosion of our democratic, not only our rights and our freedoms, but our entire ideology is under attack. We no longer know what exactly it means to live in a democracy. If we are in fact in a kleptocracy or in an oligarchy, uh, when it comes down to, you know, who's able to pay for what. I don't think uh, the, the Russians have a lot on us when it comes to oligarchies, for example. Um, and we might as well, you know, the, 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 the truth has this power that once it's said, it's been said and you can't take it back and, and, and it's out there. Uh, the problem is that the ramification of the digital revolution, revolution and I, I know we're probably running a bit long, you're probably going to have to no, do no, some editing fine. on this, but, 
you know when new when new um when new when new modes of communication uh, uh become available when for example film propaganda and radio became available who were the best at using it uh the nazis right uh we were quite late on it and and uh the the americans made use of the best directors in hollywood to come and make propaganda films uh for the war effort so they understood the power of it about five years i would say 10 years after the the germans mid 30s really understood the power of it you mean after they have import had imported leni riefenstahl here to america where she could start doing commercials well, yeah. with cigarette companies yeah i mean that 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 was essentially the i mean that's when you're talking to the to the to the professionals uh but but even to the layman we understand that new digital internet means of communication are present an opportunity to communicate differently now have the forces of democracy if they exist anywhere and if they are organized anywhere and if they know what they're doing made use of of this new extremely powerful mode of communication which has attracted you know uh thousands of uh, uh people to ISIS from western european countries uh through internet uh indoctrination which has been very easy to do for them through chat rooms and etc are we understanding that this changing modes of communication we've seen now through cambridge analytica that uh, a, a, another major global superpower was able to you know use these these private enterprises to offer information otherwise not available to well at the time not available to the democrats in sufficient ways to target their electoral uh, um, you know strategy are we then living in a free country uh in a democracy uh, we have to ask ourselves the question every day and we have to ask ourselves the question uh where are the kinks in the system why why isn't the press reporting anything about you know the global oil industry's practices which we know from i mean i learned about through this experience this happens every day what i what i discovered through the investigation that was made was basically a, a global map of how corruption works but it continues to work that way and has always worked that way and it's the 10 or 20% rule and and um well you'll be glad to hear that this show is completely financed through micro donations i don't even know who's giving me money it's okay i'll slip it under the table <laughs> <laughs> more more can be put in an envelope than i imagined actually All right. That's one of the things I discovered. Well, isn't that just a question of how big the envelope is? <laughs> <laughs> or or how big the bills are that you put in the envelope. But but that um also. Yeah. Envelopes envelopes continue to be the best uh, form of 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 transaction uh, for 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 uh, uh, corrupt transactions. Uh, envelopes and and suitcases and diplomatic pouches of cash. Well, it's been fascinating <laughs> to talk to you. It has been and i think i got a crash course in international diplomacy just from reading your book and sitting across from you uh, so thank, thank you, you so much to for coming to uh, deconstructive criticism michael susan i hope we have deconstructed a few things for your listeners well it has <laughs> been packed with information so they'll have to listen at least twice <laughs> let's make them <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you for having listened to Deconstructive Criticism with this episode's guest, Michael Susan. You can find Backstabbing for Beginners where books are sold. And if you're unsure as to where that is, you will find the link on my webpage, aronflam.com. A big thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism, whether it be on Patreon, via PayPal, Bitcoin or Swish 0768943737, 0768943737. All ways to contribute can be found in the description of this episode, regardless of what platform you're listening on. You will also find a link to my webpage, oronflam.com, where you can buy t-shirts, mugs, and hoodies with this podcast's motto, Your Feelings Are Hurting My Thoughts, as well as t-shirts and mugs with a text, Crush Socialism, Socialism is Evil, and then signed with little heart afterwards, just to remind you that we crush ideologies and not people. As well as my own book, This is a Swedish Tiger. Second edition is now sold out. The third edition will be going to print next week, and when it comes out, it will contain three new chapters. I am very proud of this third edition. Thanks to you who bought a copy of the first and or second editions. Your support enables me to, for instance, fly to Los Angeles to conduct the series of interviews that you can now listen to on the Constructive Criticisms feed. Among them, the interview you've just heard with Michael Susan. Regarding the book tour and the Gothenburg event being deplatformed, we have now found an alternate venue at Folketshus in Backa. Event details can be found on Facebook and links to that and other events can be found on aronflam.com. You've listened to Deconstructive Criticism. I am Aron Flam. Till next you hear from me, have a good unit of time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.